feel like this is a fireside chat. Uh, good evening, everybody. Welcome to Swan Galleries. Uh, a very special evening tonight, a reading uh, by someone with whom I have many different layers of connections with in my life, an old friend, Barry Yorgrau, a great writer who happened to include me in his latest tome, which is both terrifying and flattering. Terrifying in the conceptualization and very flattering in the realization. Barry is here tonight to read from his new book called Mess. I have a sneaking suspicion that a lot of you have joined us here tonight hoping to find a cure for your hoarding. That's a yes. You will be slightly disappointed, in all honesty, but I have to tell you that Barry is a phenomenally creative and intelligent writer. Combine that phenomenal intelligence and creativity with an absolutely healthy dose of neuroses and a rather serious problem, maybe not so serious, and the result is just a great book. So tonight Barry's going to read from the book. Uh, I think after he's done reading and he's made some very choice selections, after he's done reading we're going to have a little discussion hopefully about the book and we'll open the floor for some questions. Wine will be served throughout the evening and after the presentation, so... Don't worry about that. There'll be plenty more when we're done. At some point, I will get in a wonderful and shameless plug for Swan Galleries. For those of you who don't know us, uh, we're an auction house. And yet something is so connected between the world of antiques and the world of auctions uh, and the world of clutter and the world (laughs) of hoarding. It's why this event tonight seems like such a, a fortuitous connection. I went through Barry's book, I read Barry's book, I took out a lot of my favorite quotes, most of which I have with me in my pocket, and I'll pull them out later. But I think the best way to introduce Barry, more than I've done so already, is to point out what he pointed out, that in Dante's Inferno, hoarders are confined to the fourth ring of hell. (laughs) And with that, ladies and gentlemen, Barry, you're about Good evening. You know, it's, first of all, it is a real, real pleasure to be here with Nico Lowry here at Swan Galleries. For every reason, thematic and just uh, uh, such a generous and lovely evening. And I couldn't think of, I could think of one better setting to hold this reading, but we'll get into that later. So, and uh, I'll just say also that after the reading and at the end of the evening, I'll have copies of the book available for purchase for anyone who cares for it. So here, just very quickly, let me introduce and I'll read a bit. I'm mainly usually a fiction writer and a performer. And a couple of years ago, I have a place, I live in Jackson Heights in Queens. I got into a really very bad, messy situation. Um, I use the place as a writing studio and uh, as a place to store my stuff. And my girlfriend's place is just around the corner. So we have a kind of a compound, yeah? And I spend my evenings there. But... The place, uh, my place, and we travel a lot, and I love what uh, collectors call ephemera. So I bring that stuff back from our trips. And, uh, you know, that's, and I love displaying it in not in necessarily organized ways. So that, the place took on a, that kind of look. I have a lot of stuff from books and whatever. But something happened in uh, uh, four, five, um, longer, six, seven years ago, where the place really got in a much worse condition. Yeah? And what I'm talking about is I had a thing for a while where I accumulated and couldn't throw away the most disposable object in the universe, plastic 
grocery bags. My place, parts of my place started to look like a tumbleweed set from a Roy Rogers film. And as a matter of fact, interesting, Roy Rogers was a pack rat, I discovered in this book. The other thing I hang on to was uh, uh, liquor store boxes, empty liquor store boxes, because so poignantly and typically for someone in my condition, they piled up because I was going to use them eventually when I decided to organize and clean up, but I never did. So part of the mess became the objects that were supposed to be there to help me clean up my mess. And that's typical for people who have a thing. So eventually what happened is my girlfriend showed up one day, didn't really know what was going on because she hadn't been over a long time, and I didn't want people there. She needed to come in. I said, you cannot come in. And she held a glimpse over my shoulder, and that led to an ultimatum. The ultimatum was clean up or else, and clean up not just my place, but my whole act. So I uh, embarked on a project of decluttering, not just my place, but my life. I decided to turn this, because I'm a writer, into a writing project and into a larger project where I would explore not only and clean up not only my own place and figure out how to clean it up, but I would explore the larger world of clutter and hoarding and of collecting, really, because ultimately the book that came out of it is called Mess, One Man's Struggle to Clean Up His House and His Act. But really, it's a book about objects, the power of objects and memories, and the pain of letting go. And when we say objects we mean and memories, we also mean, as so often happens with these things, emotions, memories, as well as things themselves. So then to do the book, what I did was I embarked on what I called a kind of a slob's pilgrimage. I went to a Declutterers Anonymous, which was odd and interesting. Um, I went to a 12-step program for, for clutter people. I... Uh, um, <laughs> You laugh, but... <laughs> and, and didn't find it for me. I then went to a peer group, which was much better, where a support group where you could actually talk with each other. But I was semi-drummed out because the leader thought I talked too much and was whatever. Um, but I, uh, I went, and went along with professional declutterers. I went to visit actual hoarders, and then I paid a visit in the UK to the UK's, the man known as the UK's most extreme hoarder, a visit that was just one of the most astounding things. I also uh, met with and interviewed and discussed with the leading psychological figures in this field, which is a fi of hoarding psychology, which is a fairly new field. Well, I mean, it's really launched in 1993. But let me read here this. I'm going to read two little selections here. I'm mindful that I'm in a setting of collecting. So I want to read to you first a few pages about a famous collector. And then I want to get into someone else who wasn't, who was also a famous collector, but, but uh, the first collector. And this is from a chapter. When I went to visit the UK's most extreme hoarder, and this is just from the book, I just can read about it this way. I first uh, paid a call on the House Museum of Sigmund Freud, because Freud, as you know, was a famous collector. And the title of this chapter is Freud's Dirty Couch. The father of psychoanalysis began intensively collecting around the time of his father's death in 1896. So emotionally precious did his 2,300 items of, antiquary, of antique statuary and objects become to him that when the ailing 82-year-old Freud escaped Nazified Vienna to London in 1938, he brought the whole lot with him, along with his analytic couch and many of his books. The antiquities were faithfully reinstalled stored in Freud's handsome new red brick residence at 200 Maresfield Gardens in comfortable Hampstead. In the same month as it happened that the first article in New York threw its glare 
on the famous Collier Hoarder Brothers of Harlem. In 1986, following the death of Freud's psycholytic daughter Anna, the house became the Freud Museum London, as opposed to also the Freud Museum in Vienna, which doesn't have any of his antiquities. Art historian Janine Burke called Freud's passionate shopping for his collection his, quote, personal form of therapy. He liked the hunt, the wheeling, and the dealing. He traded for pieces. And if he'd had to leave it all behind in Vienna, he intended to start anew in London. Curiously, Freud wrote almost nothing about collecting as such. The artist Louise Bourgeois, who spent years in psychoanalysis in New York, wasn't over-impressed with the results, despite the museum quality of some pieces. How could Freud have an eye for aesthetic quality, she wrote, when the aesthetic of some of these objects of his is so low? Be that as it may, I sniffed the gaudy roses by Freud's Hampstead front door now and went in to meet a young research psychologist named Ashley Nordsletten. Nordsletten, a young Minnesota expat with an Oxford MA, long blonde hair, and much good humor, had co-authored a recent prominent study on collecting versus hoarding disorder to test the projected new diagnostic and statistical manual criteria. The DSM, everybody knows here what the DSM is? Of course. Uh, in 2013, was released in a new edition. And it first, for the first time, said, it said that hoarding disorder uh, was no longer to be called compulsive hoarding. It was no longer OCD-related at its extreme. It was, own, it was its own distinct disorder called now hoarding disorder. Nord's Lytton had interviewed hundreds of London hoarders and collectors in their homes, but she had never been to Freud's house. I asked her to join me. So my idea was to bring a hoarding psychologist to Freud's house and have her comment. We entered Freud's study. Yes, she said, expertly scanning the Persian carpets, the ranks of books, the statuary and cases on shelves, on tables, the prints and photos, the legendary couch, the crowded desk with its strange chair like a skinny, leathery, maternal extraterrestrial, a whole private museum, as one commentator put it. My immediate impression is of a collector, not a hoarder. All the major spaces are usable, everything being confined and meaningfully placed where it is. And no dust, I murmured, no smell. And despite the plethora of things, no sense of Nicolari's clutteritis. <laughs> the reference was a visit with, what I mean by that is that was Nico's term for his love of objects. Orderliness in Freud's house prevailed. At my request, Nordsletten gauged Freud on the clutter image rating scale. One being the lowest, nine the extreme hoarder highest. So, how did Freud's collection hold up on the clutter rating scale? She gave Freud a two because of the amount of his stuff. From, nine up, from four upward was when things became problematic, she explained. Most furniture in a room would be then be out of commission from things piled on top, much of the floor impassable. The collectors she interviewed usually fell well below the threshold. I told her I counted myself, at my worst, between a three and a four. But I'd much improved, I assured her. We leaned over Freud's desk, massed figurines. He collected Egyptian, Greek, Roman, and Chinese works, 
but nothing from Africa, occupied much of the surface. There was barely room for his writing pad on Freud's desk. I find this claustrophobic, I declared, in the hushed tone both of us were using, even though we were alone. My personal preference, Nord's half whispered, would be not to have the desk so crowded. But you see, he's left himself space to work. He's been able to stop himself from putting everything on the desk. I've read how, when Freud acquired something new, he first brought it to the dinner table to appreciate it. That's a collector. She paused, considering. I would like to ask Freud, she declared, why the sculptures on his desk are facing him. Interesting to hear his perception of that seems so intentional. I said that Freud moved the objects around each time he was working on a new project, like a miniature Greek chorus to his thinking. He called them his, quote, old grubby gods. And they all gazed at him, despite his being someone who famously didn't like being looked at. Nordsletten nodded, assessing away. I imagine if you took him away from the space, she said, he could probably tell you exactly what's on his desk and why it's there. A hoarder would not be so aware that way. I thought of this daredevil, rambunctious, foul-mouthed professional declutter I'd met named Ron the Disaster Master. And Ron the Disaster, one of my favorite lines in the book is when I had dinner with Ron the Disaster Master. And I told him that making a project out of my decluttering had kind of interfered <laughs> with my actual decluttering. <laughs> and his response, I'll never forget, was, you're so full of shit. <laughs> my girlfriend wanted me to have Ron come into my house, and I said, over my dead body. <laughs> Ron had issued a challenge to me over Indian food in Jackson Heights, where we met, to list from memory 20 things from my clutter that I'd rescue in a fire. I hadn't tried. I regarded it as one of Ron's I gotcha gambits. But certainly, I thought quickly now, I'd take my old box of old spiral-pound notebooks and story manuscripts, my beleaguered laptop, I work on a laptop that has for years been missing the J key. I won't say what that stands for. My mother's cut glass handbell, a thing for my mother from her last years, if I could find it, it was lost in my clutter somewhere. A certain yellow cutty sark whiskey box where I kept things I really loved. A small painting done for me by the Scottish artist Stephen Campbell. My old family photos, Polaroids of Prunella, that's my girlfriend's pseudonym. My girlfriend goes through various pseudonyms in the book, which I took in our early days. Now, how many was that? Could Freud have provided such a list? It's an interesting question to ask yourself. I don't know whether it's even a legitimate question, but it's an interesting question to pose to yourself. Can you name the 20 things off the top of your head that you would take if you were in a fire, away from where you, your house? If you're not in your house, you're just thinking, what immediately comes to mind? Anyway, interesting. Could Freud have provided such an answer? Would it be simply the antiquities, his old grubby gods on his desk? Their petite size was a surprise. Freud's toys, Louise Bourgeois called him. Almost no object rose over a foot and a half. From my reading, I had the impression of things being much bulkier. That would fit with my pet theory of massed objects, clutter, hoarding, as physical company, as a nurturing, consoling bulk, an environment playing mother's bosom, or a nest. A few feet from the desk, we inspected the sumptuous, original, analytic couch. Technically, it was a chaise longue stuffed with horsehair. It made a slumping, lumpy mass, voluptuously covered 
by a rich Persian rug and dark velvety pillows, like an Ottoman pasha's. Uh, yeah? A thing from the Arabian nights, though a little faded right where decades of hips had sunk. The rug on the couch, I discovered, had been a present to Freud in 1883 from his brother-in-law and distant cousin, Moritz Freud, whom Freud, in a letter to a colleague, described as suffering from, quote, pseudologica fantastica. In other words, compulsive lying. So that's where, and this is a discovery I made in doing the book, that's where so many troubled souls had reclined to pour their appalling intimacies out, their wrenching preposterous dreams on Freud's couch, lying on the gift from a pathological liar. I kind of want to lie down on it, murmured Nordsleten, though maybe it looks dirty. Dirty? I leered softly. I mean, it looks worn. Dirty isn't fair. Interesting you should come out with such a term. I suppose the connotation is it looks old and worn, therefore I think dirty. In fact, the couch was about to undergo a major restoration project, it turned out. We moved over to the other side of the study. I do find the whole study of Freud's here suffocating, I exclaimed, despite its orderliness, maybe because of its orderliness, its heavy museum-like orderliness. With all these rugs everywhere, draped on the shelves, all these books, all these glass cases, all this, all this stuff, Nordsleten chuckled. I think my research into hoarding has raised my threshold of discomfort. I walk into a room now, and so long as I can see the floor, then it's okay. <laughs> I felt, too, the chill of ghosts of my old man's offices. My father was a professor, university guy, who collected books, actually, a lot. These, albeit lesser versions of where we were. To think no more about family, in Freud's house, I went out into the sunshine of Freud's back garden with Nordsleten. She estimated that 30% of adults in the UK were collectors of some kind, whereas only 2% met the strict diagnostic requirements for hoarding disorder. I protested the figure was much lower than I'd always heard. The estimates that you read for America are 2 to 3%. The I said the figure was much lower than I'd always heard. I protested. That was because it applied to full-blown pathology, she explained. Clutter could be, more, could be problematic well below that level. I grunted. It was a case in point. I was a case in point. Nordsleten pegged hoarding to a mix of genetic vulnerability and environment. This is the classic now description that you hear from uh, people who work in hoarding, that it's a mixture of genetic proclivity, whatever that means. They backed away from saying it's actually genetically determined to genetic proclivity, and critics will laugh at that. They say, you're just fudging, you just really don't know what you're talking about. Between that and environment, that seems to be something that, you know, that essentially people, certain people have innate fragility towards things or certain uh, sensitivity towards things. Part of the sensitivity is just attraction to objects, is investing in objects at tremendous intensity, being very sensitive to them, being very imaginative about them, mixed with an environment of stressors, as they call them now. Cognitive behavioral therapy is really much has become the most really dominant form of psychotherapy, particularly in America. Other countries find it just awful and restrictive. And essentially, it's very focused, it's short-term, it's, it's very focused on symptoms and changing your ideas. So the cognitive part, the two were different strains and they mixed. One is behaviorist, which is you change your behavior through exposures, 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 a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more. 
and then you also have the cognitive where you do exercises. You actually go home and fill in you know, multiple choice things and whatever um, to change your ideas. The primacy of your childhood, right? The idea that your childhood is the fulcrum where all this stuff developed. A lot of these guys do not even believe in the unconscious. And one of the things that happened, I'm straying here, but this is, if I may say, a large highway, uh, a major highway here. What was really, really shocking to me was that in doing the book, I had to re-encounter the world of psychology. And I've been off and on through the years, I must say, been in shrinks offices. Uh, I was not prepared for how hegemonic, how utterly dominant cognitive behavioral therapy is. Psychoanalysis just is more. And I started out as being someone who was, a bit, who was really skeptical of psychoanalysis for all sorts of reasons. But I became progressively more sympathetic to psychoanalysis because the idea wasn't simply that you yank a symptom out, throw it away, and off you go. Symptoms are a way of a person trying to organize the world. So in the same way that you do not go into a hoarder's house and clean up and off you go. That's what's so terrible about the, the hoarder's TV shows. The TV show that was done, a documentary on the hoarder in UK, which Nico and I actually watched together. Um, and Nico is a fan, if I may say, of the, the TV hoarding shows. But a lot of people I know are because they're kind of a, as someone who is very neat said, they're like pornography for us, you know. Um, but for me, I find them pretty horrifying because they're really about freak shows. They're like Jerry Springer shows, like how you can get someone into a position where they're maximally stretched, stressed, and then they can behave like a, a maniac over, over a couple of rotting dolls. You know, welcome to human life. Hoarder TV shows, are, the two different approaches to that that I found, I, I really went around and became very, very, if I may say, knowledgeable about this stuff, because I interviewed all these guys and actually got in discussions with them. I still need actually to be someone who is patient and listens to other people rather than just trots out or something. But anyway, I spoke to a lot of these people. There are some people who find the hoarding shows, yes, oh, you know, that's TV for you, but they really help spread the word around. They, they bring hoarding to the public's attention so people know it's a problem, because it was a hidden problem for a long time. And there are other people. I spoke to the guy named Sanjay Saxena, who's out in... in San Diego, and who's the leading brain researcher, which has its own problems on hoarding, but also treats hoarders in therapies. And he refuses to go on the show anymore, on, on, on either of the big network shows. He said, I went on at the beginning. They are not interested. I said, we need to show what actual therapy looks like, how people, because it's a, none of these problems can be, they, if you're a hoarder, it takes forever. It takes incredible patience and endurance to be able to get someone to start letting go of stuff. And that will be the distinction between, you know what, let, let me, I'm, I, I'll come back to Freud, but I'm, 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 on, a, I'm on a natural segue here, so let, let me get to it. The difference between someone that they discover who's a hoarder and someone who's a clutter person, a clutterer, and a lot of professional organizers will not work with hoarders. Like, there'll be professional declutterers, oh, come on, let's see, let's get, clean up your mess here, let's organize a little of this. They won't work with hoarders because the hoarder will be with, their, with them, with them, with them, 75% of the work done, blah, blah, blah. Next day, you walk in as a declutterer, and the stuff is all back. So I had a very nice guy, very sympathetic, who when I first met him, a decl professional declutterer through a friend, he said, we're talking clutter, right? We're not talking hoarding. I said, no, 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 no. Me? Clutter, clutter. Ich bin ein clutterer. And he said, because I can't work with hoarders. It's just, it's a, it's a whole different ballgame, and it is. And the functional, uh, the functional difference is, although the stuff slides, obviously, is that if someone with clutter issues ultimately can, can let go. Sometimes it's harder, whatever, but they can bring themselves to let go. Whereas hoarders, it's just impossible. You, they fight every single rotten piece of 
newspaper. And what's odd is that when I spoke to the guy, the UK's most extreme hoarder, his name is Richard Wallace, yeah? after I went to Freud's place, he has cleaned up halfway from where I saw him on the documentary to start. The documentary to start was, it looks like an art installation. How many people here know Rachel Whiteread's sculptures where she fills a space? They look like Rachel Whiteread. This guy lived in a place, a bungalow, he had properties around, where he saved the Daily Mail and the Telegraph. Now, saving the Daily Mail is like saving the New York Post at its worst. I mean, he's just like, why would you buy it in the first place? But he saved it. And it was piled in his bungalow everywhere to within a foot of the ceiling. So to enter his bungalow, the documentary begins with him at its worst. He enters his bungalow. You see the soles of his boots as he belly crawls in. And he lived in two wells in the debris, like the, uh, phone booths. That's where he lived. He slept sitting up in a chair. To make his meal, he cooked two eggs each day. You show him maneuvering through these towering piles, lighting a gas stove with debris, flammable debris. You know, The fire department came to just put in a fire alarm, and the, the fireman got stuck getting into the thing. Anyway, but he, when I went to visit him, the stuff was down to shoulder level in, in, a lot of, in half the areas. The other areas, you looked in a room, and it was just piled up to the ceiling. And I said to him, as we were going around a corner, you hang on to these newspapers, and he also kept consumer packaging. He'd like to compare to show how the Weetabix changed. You see, they're offering like 13 ounces. For, you know what I mean? So, okay, okay. His parents worked in a, in a grocery store. So this is actually what I think was echoing. And I said to him, so you're kind of an archivist, really, sort of. He said, that's right. I think of myself as a collector, not a hoarder. And what he said was, He's a very sweet guy and eccentric. That's what he comes across as. He lived in this environment. He said, what happened was I didn't make sufficient allowances for what my needs would be for shelving. And so I said, ultimately, it really came down to shelving, yeah? And he said, yes. And the difference in his collection, what he collected, because he collected dinky toys when he was a kid and then you know, migrated onto magazines and stuff. He would often have to, uh, if he came into a place and had to choose between one or two things, he'd just take both, just two, two of a thing. Just one, yeah. The thing that's distinctive is that these saved, he, he planned to scan them into a computer. You know, he didn't have a computer, but that was his plan. His storage of these things was that they were molding and rotting, but he thought of himself as a collector. And the distinction, one of the distinctions between a collector and a hoarder, besides just having a focus, being selective, is that they take care of things. They, know, you know, they attend to that, whereas a hoarder will not see that. A hoarder has some deeper emotional connection to things. I'm going to leave Freud there and just say a couple of more general remarks, and then if Nico wants to ask something or whatever. Yeah, clutterers. And the other person I just want to see, since I'm in an art situation here, I won't read it, I'll just describe it. The case of Andy Warhol, because we're now interested in seeing what's the, what's the blur between collecting and hoarding. And Famously, Andy Warhol occupies that kind of blurred thing. His townhouse, by the time he died, in the accounts I've read, the townhouse, the last townhouse, had two rooms that were habitable. The rest of the townhouse, X number of floors, was all packed with stuff. But he was, at the same time, a discriminating and voracious collector. People who were in the house that I spoke to said that stuff was tidy. It was taken care of. It wasn't left there rotting. It but it occupied, it dominated the space. And that's one of the keys that you have for people who have hoarding issues, supposedly, is that things stop having their norm. As the woman said, as Ashley Nordsleton said in her piece, Freud, I can see that the, 
furniture has its normal functions. You don't have the bathtub filled with paintings or whatever. But there's a famous instance where, where people point to uh, Warhol and say, this is what shows really, though, he's a hoarder, which was at the end of every day or every couple of days, he would just take his arm, sweep what was ever on his desktop into a box, label it, and store it. And people, they're called time capsules. And people said, this is someone like holding on to everything that they have and keeping it in storage. What do you want from a hoarder? Then I spoke to the uh, archivist at the Warhol Museum, a guy named Matt Rebekan, who's going through the time capsules. And he said, aha, actually what the time capsules were was this little clever uh, gesture by Warhol, because what Warhol intended was that the time capsules would then be sold at Castelli, his gallery, with just simply like you couldn't tell one box from another box. It was like you know, a wonderful conceptual joke. You don't know whether you, you, it went up at auction, you paid your money, and you either got like, you know, a bunch of the New York Post you know, and a cigarette, you know, a, a package of cigarettes, or you got some Warhol drawings, and you didn't know what you were getting. So he had that strategy. And then I found out something, even after the, I was done with the book, that I think is really fascinating. And uh, as collectors, I think you'll appreciate it. Everyone here knows, of course, the Che Guevara print by Warhol, right? Che Guevara. Warhol didn't make that print. Gerard Malanga, a member of the factory, was in Rome, hard up for cash, and decided just to knock off <laughs> a Che Guevara thing, an Andy, you know, a paneled sort of thing. Warhol found out about it, went to Rome and said, Gerard, you know, what? Che passe here. So Malanga decided, they, they split the things, but the... That Che Guevara thing is not is Warhol's. And what was, for me, interesting was that in the course of doing my book, I was also in therapy in, with a shrink who didn't know really about hoarding because, as such, hands-on, because she turned out to be, what she was was a Lacanian, which is kind of like, it was an odd thing. But she was, I said, even though you're a Lacanian, you're still a good shrink. But she had a picture. She had Warhol's, what made me think about this, is she had Warhol's, a copy of Warhol's Che Guevara on her wall. The other thing that is an interesting footnote in this, and I must say, in the age of Google, one is able to dig up footnotes that are just so resonant and interesting, it's not funny. And you can do it without going to the library. And you can do it when you're in the moment. In other words, you say, hey, I wonder if, and then you don't have to go chasing for two weeks and waiting for the book. You go to Google Books, you just Google, and you can find your information. This is what I found out. Gerard Malanga became an archivist, collecting archives in his way, in later years, stuff got a little overcrowded, so he actually had to find new quarters, wonder what's there. And he said this famous thing. He said Warhol was a hoarder. He said, well, certainly was a clutterbug, was so disorganized that when Valerie Solano came to his, wanted back the film script that she'd given Warhol, and which was actually the proximate cause of the, you know, the cause of why she pulled a gun on, on, on and shot Warhol, is because he was stealing her film script. The reason he hadn't given the film script back was because he couldn't find it in his clutter. So I thought that was an interesting... Uh, um. Yeah, so there you have... Uh, collectors famously can uh, um, supposedly are selective. They focus on something. Hoarders tend to just grab what's ever around. Just grab. If they have, if they have one of something or they have 40 of something, no problem. Whereas a collector will try to achieve will work towards an epitome of something. We'll make a, we'll make a larger grouping. Yeah? We'll, we'll, we'll organize a world in there. Collectors like to display things, by and large. Some, some don't, but by and large, collectors, it's a, it, it has a narcissistic payoff that you own this. and blah, blah, blah. They share, and they take care of it. 
they also are able to let go. In other words, what they can do is say, I have this piece, but that piece is better for what I've got. That's a better piece. And they can unhappily, but they will part with it. No hoarder does that. When, with the thing with, one of the things that makes the hoarder stuff just so accumulated is what the new DSM uh, rating recognizes, which is that letting go is the main symptom now. Accumulation is still probably, up, it's still probably equal. It's now second, but it's probably equal. They, you know, they're trying to be methodical. But not being able to let go. So when you think, and most hoarders are, tend to be older in the population than younger, although someone was just saying they have a four-year-old kid, a two-year-old kid who, is, who, who cannot let go of them. But they tend to be older, and what happens if you accumulate a life where you don't let anything go out? Everything comes in, nothing goes out, it starts to pile up, starts to pile up. I'll close with this. The Marie Kondo book, do you know what I'm talking about? The Japanese Art of Tidying Up, came out right after I finished my book, so I wasn't able to write about it in the book. And I will have to write about it because it's become this juggernaut of in a lot of ways on this issue. And I really realized that I came ultimately to the position of Marie Kondo says, get rid of everything as much as possible. Just have what you love as sparks joy. Fair enough. But, you know, I have a larger sweep of things. You know, I, it maybe doesn't spark joy, but I want it. I like it. Maybe it reminds me of a part of my history. You know, I have an attachment to it. I ultimately began to feel, I'm certainly not a minimalist. I like to say that. I like to call myself functionally decluttered. Yeah? I came up with a new phrase. I'd like to say I'm schweppervescently decluttered. <laughs> but I'll say this. I finally came to this feeling about things, that ultimately it comes to, unless it really is interfering with your life, that you feel it's damaging your life, you cannot get out the door, you cannot find things that you really want to find, you cannot have people over, people very close to you are getting really upset about it. Unless it gets to that problem, if it's just a question of messiness or clutteredness or whatever, it's personal taste. Some people like a lot of objects, other people don't. Some people like a lot of objects around it. Some people can tolerate disorder more than other people. Some people, Ernest Hemingway, I've just, he has a show up now, a total clutterbug, a total pack rat, sentimental. Ernest Hemingway hung on to every single Christmas card practically that came to him. They've discovered this now as they're going through his, his, his the stuff left over from his finca in Cuba. He saved old, he, he saved old hunting license, saved every practically, you know. He lived in this towers of clutter, clean, but there you go. Some people are very sentimental, as I say. Other people aren't. Some people can tolerate a little more disorder other people than other people. And some people can even tolerate a little more dust than other people. I mean, Picasso famously said, dust is my ally. But then he wasn't talking about his bedroom. He was talking about his studio. But still, on that note of dust is my ally, thank you so much. Barry, thank you very much. Lest you did not get this, Barry is singularly passionate about this topic, singularly informed about the topic. And what I hope was also clear to you is that the thoughtful way in which he has approached this topic is what, to me, makes the book so eminently readable and enjoyable. I'm going to take a very great liberty and read some of your own words. Sacre bleu. I won't read them as well as you, but there were, there were certain passages in the book that sum up both Barry's great talent as a wordsmith, and before the event started tonight, somebody asked him if he would post any pictures of his apartment 
so people could see how the clutter had diminished after this great personal journey. And Barry said, yes, word pictures. I will post word pictures. No, I'll post some pictures too. But, but the point is you're a wordsmith. That's where I was going. I think you're a good photographer too, but we don't know. <laughs> and there were certain passages in the book that really caught my attention as just a very insightful, touching, and rather prescient way of describing maybe not so much a hoard, but a mess. And this is what you uh, said about your own apartment. First of all, you referred to yourself as a clutter-mad wannabe camel driver, and you said that it was a hodgepodge swamp festooned with touristic knick-knackery amid the flotsam, as if someone were constructing miniature travel-themed picnic spots in the rubble world of boxes and litter. Allegedly, self-awareness is one of the first uh, things you have to do before tackling a problem. I think you nailed that. And you also referred to your apartment as somewhat curated, questioning, wasn't my whole space a kind of private, untidy display case? A wunder cabinet as such, if you will? Or perhaps rather a reliquary, an archival site, one forever mushrooming, an organic museum? And I think that really describes... Well, I've never been to your house, but I'm hoping it really describes your house. I think it sort of describes my house also. Uh, and I think one of the things in the book that you try and do is draw that fine line between somebody who has clutter issues and somebody who is a sort of DSM-certified hoarder. Yes, I mean, you know what? I think it also is things aren't hard and fast, you know? I mean, people who are... There's no reason why you can't be neat in sometimes and messy in other times and go, you know... And, you know, as long as it, as I say, as long as your life is going along and you feel like it's not really harming you, there's no hard and fast stuff. For instance, my girlfriend and I, Anya, were in Istanbul. We have a little place in Istanbul. And we visited the house of people who have the biggest collection of coffee-related objects in Turkey, at least, and probably in, in, in the world a lot. They have the most exquisite little espresso minute, you know, that are like little worlds. And they're, they just moved into a new place, and I looked around, they had collections of other stuff like that, and I said to the guy, hmm, is the place always as tidy as this, or does it also have, uh, is it, he said, oh, no, no, no. I said, is, uh, what we're seeing, because they had books, whatever, they had the collecting impulse. He had people going out and buying things in whole lots and coming back. I said to him, do you know every object you have? He said, no, I have shipments of stuff that I I don't know what's in there. And the sense I got from those people is that the space wasn't always as uh, sociable as it looked then. That, and so uh, there's a sense you could say to these people, I mean, one doesn't, got to get, one doesn't want to be in the position where one says, aha, you see, you're not a collector, you're a hoarder. You're, you know, I, for me, I became to think, I mean, that's scare stuff, that's just nonsense. What you realize is this, this stuff is really just, people really respond to objects. You really respond to objects. I mean, I, I thought that what you said was, you know, and I think that, and there are people, there's people that way and people who, who don't feel that way. And some people really respond to order in a certain way and other people don't. Don't forget one of the qualities also, no, don't forget, one of the qualities, surprisingly, about people who are hoarders is that they're perfectionists. That if they can't get it just so, to hell with it. So that, that they're always looking, they're always in a sense of being, becoming rather than being. Yeah, they're always waiting to arrive. I mean, that's that's an interesting, uh, uh, you know, that's inter that may not be the most fruitful way of, of functioning. But then, who's to say, you know? So let me. I want to ask you one more question before yes. we open up the floor to questions. Having gone through this three, four, five-year process of writing this book, I will plug it again. It's a great book. 
It's worth buying later tonight and having Barry sign it. You'll have that opportunity. Some of you. Are you cured? Um, well, you know, Scientology has been a real help. So <laughs> I wouldn't say cured. I'd say cleared. I'm cleared. I, I, no, just, want to, I no, just want to point out, the, the, the comment from the audience was so prescient. I said, are you cured? And the, the, the comment was, curated. Which I <laughs> Beautifully. Think is exactly, right. exactly. I think, I mean, I think clutter is not something, as, again, even I would say to a certain extent hoarding. It's only a problem if really it's a problem for you, if it, or becomes a problem for you. If you're about to be evicted, if your marriage is about to break up, if your kids hate you because of it, because you've starved them from being able to be, if you're consumed with depression and shame, then clearly something is going on that you should attend to. And if your house is piled up to the thing and rotting, maybe there's some, you know, the issues there that you need to be addressed carefully, patiently, and with people who are not into just yanking out symptoms, not just saying, let's clear up and go, okay? And then we'll talk about it. But the rest of it, I don't consider my, I, I think I've arrived at a different understanding about it, a little more self-conscious, but it's not something I consider clutter, certainly, that needs curing. It's not, it's not, a, it's not an illness that way. It's just, an approach, it's, it's just an attitude towards life. You know, I, some people are just slobby, and, you know, I, and, you know, I go into, here's one thing I think that was really interesting, too. I'm sorry, I just, I like to throw out these little nuggets that I've picked up along the way. There was a wonderful English psychoanalyst named Jane Graves, who was also taught design at St. Martin's. So, and she wrote a book called The Secret Life of Objects. Alas, she died before I could speak to her. And she said, when it's mine, it's clutter. When it's yours, it's mess. <laughs> So there's, uh, you know, it's the Mel Brooks approach to things, you know. Comedy is when you fall down and break your neck, ah! <laughs> and tragedy is when I have, you know, I cut my finger, <laughs> you know. So there's a, the, and, but that's the challenge in all, in all, in all these issues. Thank you all so much. Books are $25 each. They'll be available for sale. Barry's signing them. He'll be answering any questions. The bar is still open. Fantastic. Nico, Thank you very much. Thank you. It was really great. Cheers, guys. Thanks for listening to Swan Sessions, a production of Swan Auction Galleries. For more information on Swan, our specialists, and our auctions, check us out at swangalleries.com. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and follow us on Twitter at Swan Galleries.